The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. It's the 20th of November 2018 and we're going to take up um, a story from The Hidden Lamp. This is um, an occasional series we're doing <coughs> on the women masters who appear in our Pool of Radiance chart that we've, we've started to do. And we've just been picking these um, out at random and um, talking about them. Um, every now and then as we've been going through the last, it must be about three years now that we've been picking these out. And this one that we're going to look at um, today is called um, Zhu Yong's Earth. And um, I'll read the story and then we'll um, look a little bit about background material on this uh, master Ziyong. A monk asked master Ziyong Chungru, 30 blows, are they the actions of a man or an enlightened being? Ziyong replied, just as long as the fellow isn't beaten to death. The monk said, when you speak, the congregation assembles like clouds. In the end, who is the great hero among women? Zhe Yong said, Each and every person has the sky over their head. Each and every one has the earth under their feet. The monk gave a shout. Zhe Yong said, What is the point of recklessly shouting like that? The monk then bowed respectfully and Zhu Yong said, The Dharma does not rise up alone. It can't emerge without reliance on the world. If I take up the challenge of speaking, I must surely borrow the light and the dark, the form and the emptiness of the mountains and hills and the great earth, the call of the magpies and the cries of crows. The water flows and the flowers blossom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. In this way, there is no restraint. So just a little bit of um, background material on this master, Zhu Yong Chungru. Um, um, and it's this it's unusual in that we actually have um, quite a bit of information on on her because um, there's this um, scholarly text that we're going to be reading from, which has done a, a lengthy study of her of her uh, life or was it reporting on her life and her teaching. Um, this book is called Eminent Nuns. Women Chan Masters of 17th Century China, and it has a whole chapter on um, Zhu Yong. And this is coming from some records that have, have miraculously survived of her, um, her life and her teachings. So there's a lot more um, 
here than we can cover. So I'll just um, be um, skipping around and picking out some some of the interesting parts of it. And this this eminent nuns book is by Beata Grant, who's who's a um, scholar and teacher. She teaches Chinese literature, religion, and women's and gender studies at Washington University in St. Louis. I have a couple of other of her books, which are also really um, interesting and valuable. <clears throat> so just, just a little bit about, about um, about her life. So she's a, um, belonged to um, a Linji lineage. And there is this material comes from a biographical account that appears um, that she wrote herself in um, a collection of her works. Um, she grew up um, in, in roughly the Beijing area, um, so she was from northern China. Um, her family moved there from, from the Liao River Valley of northeast China. And um, she was born around 1645 in what is today um, central Hubei province. <clears throat> her father um, was in the service of one of the emperors um, but then he withdrew from the, the, um, serving the emperor and, and uh, turned down uh, official positions and, and went into retirement, retirement uh, devoting himself to farming and study. But she does say about her father that he was upright and honest, a pure and good man of integrity and cultivation. And he was also um, a believer in Buddhism. So um, Zi Yong seems to have had a little bit less trouble persuading her <coughs> parents to let her become a nun than, than some others. Some of the other stories that are told in this book about other um, eminent nuns. Um, she was, it seems, an only child. And um, she, she talks also about being um, determined from a very young age to um, leave the world and become a nun. She, she tells us that her uh, tonsure master, that's the person who, who um, uh, shaved her head, her first teacher, um, was uh, a monk or nun by the name of Buren. And that after, after receiving tonsure, 
she um, spent many years uh, visiting masters to deepen her, her um, understanding. And one of the places she visited was Mount Utai, Utaishan, which is about 150 miles southwest of Beijing. And it's really, it's a, it's a, a whole bunch of mountains rather than just one. Um, five Wutai, I think, mean, means five mountains. And um, she um, mentions the grueling trip that, that um, she had to take to reach Wutai, which is um, not surprisingly, you have to go through a whole, whole bunch of mountains. Um, when my teacher, um, Rishi Kolhead, went there around 1982, I think it was, it was still a grueling trip. Um, think about it, something like a 20-hour jeep ride over potholed, winding, steep, narrow roads. Um, but by the time we went in 2001, it was only um, a six or seven hour trip in a bus and the roads were mostly steel, uh, sealed, though still, still winding through the mountains. So it's a lot, a lot less um, inaccessible now than it was. And, and no doubt um, Master Ziyong would have been doing the, the journey on foot. Here's what she writes about, about her um, travel to um, Wutai. When I was in the region of Wutai, west of the Liao River, I experienced much toil and difficulty, but with a resolute spirit I faced the dangers and encountered tigers and wolves, thieves and bandits. But I was not frightened of fire or swords, natural disasters or people out to harm me. I regarded everything with complete calm and tranquility. So get a picture of a pretty um, uh, courageous uh, person here. And people may know that, that um, Wutai from, from as early as the 5th century was known as the place of um, the home of the great Bodhisattva of Wisdom, Manjushri. And um, legend had it that if you were um, a kind of devout enough, concentrated enough in your practice when you visited Wutashan, you might be visited yourself by Manjushri. He might appear to you and you never knew who it was, what form he would take. And so to, to be a pilgrim on uh, Utashan was to be um, in, a, in a high state of readiness and alertness in case one might encounter Manjushri on the road. It says here, it was also known as a place where one might be rewarded with sacred visions of Manjushri himself. And here it says, usually in the form of auspicious and wonderful lights. Um, it seems that Ziyong 
Chengru was one of the many who claimed to have been granted such a vision. She records the experience in a short poem with a long title. On pilgrimage on Mount Wutai, I lost my way, but the Bodhisattva took compassion on me and manifested himself so as to show me the way. I wrote this, um, this as a record of this miracle in her verses as follows. Peaks and cliffs in folds of green known for their freshness. Mist and rain so obscure and deep I lost my way upward. Treading upon the dark blue hills a red sun appeared and the Dharma King burst forth from out of the void. She writes, she writes evocatively her experiences. And it was on Mount Wutai that she found um, the master um, who was most, most important to her. His name was Gulu Fan, the monk under whom she would, as she put it, die and then come back to life again. This is a way of talking about coming to awakening, dying to the small self and awakening to the great self. And this master was eventually to give her Dharma transmission. She talks a little bit in her record about her, her um, practice um, under Gulu Fan and her work on, on koans. Um, that it seems her, her, her practice was um, um, what was known in China as Huato cultivation, koan work. And she refers in a Dharma talk that's recorded to the great ball of doubt that was so emphasized by Da Hui and others. Um, she says, 13 years ago, this mountain monastic embraced her Huado, neglecting to sleep and forgetting to eat. She was like an idiot, like a cripple, like a person that was dead. Thirteen years later, she is like the bright sun on a beautiful day, shining on everything without exception. And it's, it's not clear whether um, this 13 years was the time she spent under Gulu Fan or whether it includes her, her other travels up to, up to meeting him. Um, but in any case, she, she eventually became uh, one of Gulu Fan's official Dharma successors. And then um, in 1691 um, was appointed as the abbess of, of Eternal Glory Chan Cloister, uh, Yungqing Chanyuan in Beijing. And she served uh, simultaneously several other com comment, com convents in the, in the imperial city including Vast Benevolence Convent and the Eternal Life Chan Cloister. She, this later one she wrote a poem about. The, the site of this Buddhist convent in the northern city is old. 
and its magnificently placed statues are grand and imposing. What is before and after in the transmission of Dharma? Just follow your karmic destiny, whether it is bitter or sweet. How wonderful not to engage in conceptions and deliberations, grasping that which seems to exist and yet seems not to be. I ask my nuns, wondering if there is anyone who understands. Are you going to be firm? Then you'll have to match swords. Pick, picking out the core of this poem is probably the, the line where she uh, says, just follow your karmic destiny, whether it is bitter or sweet. Not, not reading too much into that. We don't know where our, our, how, how old our karmic destiny is, where the, where the different strands of it come from. But um, to just be um, engaging with our life as it is, um, whatever comes before us is momentous in a sense. Um, just what needs to appear and just what we need to engage in. Apparently she um, worked very hard to restore, restore um, a couple of these convents which were very run down. Um, she was able to do this um, through her own hard work and by, by rallying the help of, of wealthy patrons. So she would have spent quite a bit of time, you could say, would say in um, present terms, fundraising. Um, says in this uh, text, in the accounts of Dharma encounters and talks in her Yulu, Yulu is like a um, record of her teachings, book of her teachings. In her Yulu collection, ascribed to this period of her life, there are numerous references to visiting groups of laywomen who sponsor vegetarian meals and request Dharma talks. And interesting thing is that at this time, there were um, these um, religious lay associations which were very strong. Um, and it existed for, for some time uh, in China, and they were mostly um, made up of women um, who, would, who would support various um, teachers and go for Dharma talks and, and, and sponsor um, offerings of food. And there are also references to visits from members of the imperial family. It writes, um, such imperial patronage no doubt went a long way towards establishing the reputation of Zhu Yong's convent, um, not to mention her herself. She, was, she was, must have been quite um, uh, impressive.
And also in the records, she, um, besides receiving numerous visitors, um, she was involved in many requests for ceremonies such as um, funerals, um, ordinations. So her life, um, maybe not quite what we think of as going to be monastic life. We think it maybe as something is withdrawing from the world and, and, and live a very quiet life. But in fact, it seems from this um, and from other accounts of other masters that it was a, a, an extremely um, full, busy life. One of many, many encounters. Here's a poem that she wrote um, on the occasion of her 49th birthday. How many glorious seasons have passed, 40 and nine years of springtimes. Although in this world I have no companion, if I ask my mind, I find it is my own intimate. The smell of incense disperses the early dawn. The closed shutters keep away the dusty world. From today, having woken from a foolish dream, I am the just-as-it-is idler person of the way. So even though she had this very busy life, she still could describe herself as an idler. This busy life of fundraising, conducting retreats, um, receiving guests. She also writes of um, this. Laboring hard, I exerted myself, and never once was I willing to steal even a half day of leisure. Abandoning all attachments of body and soul, I resolutely dedicated my life to the attainment of sagehood and the transcendence of the world. Thanks to the power of the Buddha, I was able to move and persuade some Dharma patrons from among the wealthy gentry and district magistrates to help me to build a monastery. Once I had set up the basic framework, I was able to attract disciples and donors who, with their thoughts bent on posterity, helped me in the restoration and construction. Even before everything was in order, we held the three-month summer silent meditation retreat. So in the midst, you could say, of their building project, they have a, one of these three-month retreats, Angos. Although I had not completed my work, in my heart I wanted to benefit and liberate the people of the world. It is because of this that I occasionally have had to make use of roundabout and cunning means, and it is for this reason that I was bestowed with the honorary name of Ship of Compassion, and universal salvation. This was bestowed on her by, uh, by an emperor. And um, of course, such, having such a name disposed, um, um, bestowed on one would, would increase the interest of the public in coming to the temple, be a mark of distinction. Even more visitors came and um, wanted to spend time in, in the monastery.
Um, here's an, uh, just an example of an ex exchange with, with, um, between her and a scholar coming to the temple. A first degree graduate came from the south and entered the hall. He and the master looked at each other and then the said, scholar said, having travelled all day to come and visit the ship of compassion, who would have guessed that this ship of compassion should turn out to be nothing but an old crone? The master, emitting an earth-shaking roar, shaking roar, then asked, what is this place? Tell me, is it male or is it female? When the scholar could not reply, she said to him, come closer and I will tell you. Bad idea. When the scholar was in front of her, she grabbed him and said, from the day you left Spirit Mountain, there is no place to be sought. From this day on, mother and son have met again. The scholar said, I trust you completely, and prostrating himself, took refuge and requested the tonsure. So a dramatic turnaround. Um, besides all this work building um, and renovating the temple that she was in charge of, um, she also um, clearly did um, a considerable amount of travel, um, both before and after she became an abbess. And we can imagine that this might have been quite a relief to all her administrative duties. Um, Here's an example of a poem that she wrote about, about her, her times traveling. I still think about carrying my travel bundle in those days gone by, traveling the hills, frolicking in the waters, coming out in a cloud country, eyes open and eyebrows raised in astonishment. Everything in Sama is Samadhi, and in this great earth there is nowhere that is not a wisdom hall. And we can relate this this poem to the words in the story that we're, we're going to look at tonight. But in this great earth, there is nowhere that is not a wisdom hall. In the last um, um, of her travels, um, it's not clear whether um, she ever made it back to to Beijing to her to her home temple. She, as she had promised her followers that there that she would. The the um, writer. Beata Grant says, it is also unclear when exactly she passed away, though we are told that it occurred on the 20th day of the 12th month. We don't know what year. Um, the only account we have is that of an exchange between Zhu Yong Chungru and her disciple, Jing Xuan. It is a perfect Chan performance, but oddly poignant nevertheless, especially when we consider that Jing Xuan was one of her senior students serving both as her personal attendant and as one of the nuns responsible for keeping the record of their teachers' dharma talks and other activities. 
her name appears in one of the one of the fascicles of her discourse record collection. But here's the exchange. Jing was very anxious about the master's departure into Nirvana. It's a way of saying her the master's death. The master said, from the beginning there has been neither birth nor death. So what will Nirvana will there be? But Jing's grief did not abate. The master then gave a shout and Jing silently went into a trance. The master then called her out of it and said, at this moment, is there still any Nirvana or is there still not any of a Nirvana? Jing said, your disciple from the beginning has experienced neither birth nor death. So what Nirvana can there be? The master then said, since there is no birth or death, how can there be a Nirvana? Jing did not know what to say. The master said, this is what it is like before the dream. Jing replied, what is it like after the dream? The master said, when you are in a dream, you still speak the language of dreams. So um, it seems, as is often the case with these masters, that they're teaching right up to the moment of, of their passing. They, even their death becomes uh, a means to teach and uh, to, to help the student deepen their questioning about birth and death and liberation. And then finally when she did die she was she produced uh, one last verse which is as follows. Summoning the ordinary, who does not know it? All of a sudden I have grasped the sword and split open the dying words of the immortals. Fathers are never able to transmit it to their sons. Now back to our story. We'll just um, have a look at it bit by bit here. A monk asked Master Zuyong Chungru, 30 blows, are they the actions of a man or an enlightened being? Zuyong replies, just as long as the fellow isn't beaten to death. So um, 30 blows, uh, people who are familiar with the koans will probably recognize this as um, one of the fairly vigorous, um, you could even say macho, uh, teaching methods of the Rinzai school, the Linji school, um, to whether the masters actually give the student 30 blows or they threaten to. Um, it's quite a common uh, common thing in, in um, certain branches of the, of, the, of the Linji school of Chan. So the monk comes and asks about these 30 blows and particularly who is giving them? Are they the actions of a man or an enlightened being. Now 
what does he mean here by man? Is he talking about an, an ordinary being, a non-enlightened being? Or is he talking about a man in contrast to a woman? Is he, um, is he, and often these, these questions, are they're sort of indirect, what they're really asking is, is uh, who are you? If you give 30 blows, and she was known to be have a pretty vigorous style of teaching at certain points, if you are giving 30 blows, do you assume, presume to be a man? Or um, are you, do you presume to be an enlightened one as a woman? How dare you? And her response is, is, is a great one because it does not, he doesn't get a rise out of her, he doesn't get a reaction from her, his sort of somewhat impertinent question. She says, just as long as the fellow isn't beaten to death. Um, you could see her as, as uh, contrasting here, um, live blows with dead blows. Blows given at the right moment, um, in the, in the, with the right, in the right situation, could give us life to help us wake up. That's that's the way Master Linji um, would use the physical co contact. It was to to bring the student into the present moment, right to here, this moment. It's, that's great when used skillfully, but they could just become dead blows, and this was a problem right from the, um, the early times of the of the Zen school, that a master would use this as a teaching method, and then others would imitate that master. Um, and it would just be an imitation rather than a living response to a student's need. And in that case, the live blows became dead blows. Like, um, it's why he, she says, just as long as the isn't, fellow isn't beaten to death, the point of the blows is not to beat somebody to death, but the, to beat them into life. So in a way, Master Cheng Yu is answering the question about who she is when she gives 30 blows. Then the monk asked, when you speak, the congregation assembles like clouds. In the end, who is the great hero among women? In this second questions, uh, there's a little bit, bit more of his 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 veiled um, discrimination against her her being female that comes out in this. It's a little bit more obvious here. When you speak, the congregation assembles like clouds. Now, it seems to be um, perhaps a compliment. He's trying. He's tried to get her with with a challenging question, and now he's. He first seems to be complimenting her for, because if the congregation assembles like clouds, that's to, to 
um, accumulate, to be, be many people coming to listen to her speak. And in the end, who is the great hero among women? And this involves a little bit, um, it needs to be unpacked a little bit. So he seems to be saying, well, who's this great, great teacher? Who, who is it that's the great hero among women? Um, again, asking, who are you? What are you? And this, this line takes a little bit of unpacking because uh, what this, this great hero um, has got a long history in, in Chan school. And it's, it's a quite a um, gender biased, you could say, term in, in uh, Chinese. Um, it's Chang Fu, and sometimes this Chang Fu is actually tra translated as um, a manly man, <laughs> or a, another le slightly less um, comic translation is a gentleman hero. So, so the this monk is saying, "Are you a gentleman hero among women?" And we, in, our, in this, we see how much, how much um, gender bias there was in, in Chan circles. This, the masters were seen as being in heroes, um, but it, it was in, in very kind of macho terms. Here's what um, um, Grace Shireson writes about this in her book Zen Women. Beyond Tea Ladies, Iron Maidens, and Macho Masters. She writes, we, What we learn from classical Zen literature most emphatically is that all Zen masters are heroic. Uh, Leverings is another scholar, has noted that this, noted this use of male gendered language to describe a Zen master's essence. On the one hand, all beings, without exception, are capable of enlightenment. On the other hand, any being who attains the way is Chang Fu, or a manly man. The heroism of Zen masters is both the source of their determination to practice and the fruit of their spiritual accomplishment. Zen masters predominantly come in one flavor, the heroic manly men. What does this say about the female Zen master? And um, she goes on to talk about how in the, in the classical literature of Zen, the, the stuff that became the kind of the canon or the received um, uh, literature, the, the koan collections that became part of, the, part of the curriculum that is taught, the women who appear uh, fit into that mold. They're the ones the, who manage to kind of act like manly men. And, and they're the ones who are, there are very few of them, but they're the ones who are, um, whose records got into the official stories. Um, but they're very, very much kind of one-dimensional. We don't know much about their struggles or their lives. And their stories are stories that sort of fit into that, into that, um, um, macho mold and it's the stories from outside of that tradition where we, we learn more about the women and their lives and their struggles 
as distinct from, from what the men experienced. So you could see this monk is saying, well, how come you, how can you possibly claim to be a manly man since you're um, a woman? But again, this um, this this jab, this poke, doesn't um, upset um, Master Ziyong, and she comes back with with what is a beautiful statement. Each and every person has the sky over their head. Each and every one has the earth under their feet. It reminds me a little bit of um, a quote uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, people usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle, but I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or in thin air, but to walk on earth. Every day we're engaged in a miracle which we don't even recognize. A blue sky, white clouds, green leaves, the black, curious eyes of a child, our own two eyes, all is a miracle. So the Master Chang Ru is really acknowledging this miracle that is, is right in front of our eyes. Uh, you could also say that she's um, uh, pointing to, um, when she says each and every person, she's pointing to the fact that it really is everybody who is equally endowed. It doesn't have anything to do but being with being a man or a woman. Beginners, experienced practitioners, healthy people, sick people, um, criminals and the law-abiding, uh, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, uh, each and every one is um, endowed with um, the sky above and the earth below. In response to this statement, the monk gives a shout. Now, a shout, ha! Would, was another classical response, especially again in the Linji school. Uh, you read if you read lots of stories of the of the ancient masters, there often be this word cuts. We might in in English we might say bah. So why did this um, monk shout in this way? And again, this shout, like the thirty blows, it was easy for it to become to turn from being. A, um, a response that's full of life, full of presence, um, and easy for it, and it did turn often into being a kind of a Zen cliche. But but my guess is here that the monk, the monk's purpose was um, he was he was giving a response to Ziyong's statement about about. Um, each and every person having the sky over their head and the earth under their feet. Um, 
how adequate a response and we could we could debate but a response to that 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 miracle of being alive um, and Ji Yong chides him she says she says um, what is the point of recklessly shouting like that and you can imagine these masters must have got pretty sick of students coming and <laughs> shouting and um, strutting around. Perhaps she saw in, in this monk this kind of a, a bit of a Zen stink in his shout. Or maybe it was an authentic demonstration of his response and she was testing him. Again, she was pulling the rug out from under him. And that's, that's the interesting thing about the monk's next response after she says this. She, she, she doesn't, isn't impressed by this shout, but says, what's the point? What's the point of shouting like that? And we can see in this, she's saying, well, if everyone has the sky over their head and the earth under their feet, why do we have to make a fuss about it? Why do we have to um, posture? And it's just, just how things are. Everybody has the same inheritance. And, and in response to this, the monk is now silent. And he simply bows. And, and just in that silent bow, there's a great deal. It's like now, suddenly, he's not testing her. He's not poking her and trying to get a rise. He's just open. He's receptive now. He's no longer saying you're, you're some kind of upstart female, um, trying to be a manly man. All of those sorts of categories now are, have dropped. He's dropped them. And sensing that openness and that receptivity, now Master Zuyong is more forthcoming. She says, the Dharma does not rise up alone. It can't emerge without reliance on the world. If I take up the challenge of speaking, I must surely borrow the light and the dark the form and the emptiness of the mountains and hills and the great earth, the call of the magpies and the cries of the crows, the water flows and the flowers blossom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. In this way, there is no restraint. So right after really um, steering the, this monk in the direction of of dropping categories, male and female, black and white, and so forth. Now, she's actually affirming the world of forms, the world of difference, and saying the Dharma completely relies on the things of the world.
in another translation of this, it says that um, the Dharma um, can't emerge without reliance on the environment. She ends by saying, the water flows and the flowers blossom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. She's, she's perhaps aligning herself with this teaching of, of uh, mountains and rivers and the great earth in the sense of her own words being flowing like, like the water. Her words and actions can be, it can be just natural, as natural and selfless as, as the teachings of flowers and magpies and crows. But at the same time, she's she's also saying that these these very things of the world um, inform her teaching. Even more than that, she's saying that they inform her very being. In, um, in November in, um, in Rochester, in Arnold Park, where the Zen Center is, um, on, in the evenings, as the, as the, um, around dusk, uh, great flocks of crows come and roost in the, in the trees, in the street. And they settle down in trees, actually, all over the, all over the city. And uh, every time I hear those, though, their harsh cries, caw, 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 and just probably scores, if not uh, more, of, of these crows in the trees, it takes me right back to the first time that I visited the center, which was in November in 1986. And and they, they they evoke in me all all the 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 feelings that I went through at that um, at that first visit to the center. Um, wonder at the the Dharma and, and the community there, and and um, strong feeling of having having finally found the way that I needed to uh, follow. And the crows bring this forth from me, the sound of these, their, their cawing. It's, um, it's really as if, if um, time and space expand in my hearing those, those, those cries. There's a line we chant in Affirming Faith and Mind, um, one instant is 10,000 years. They at once point to something very um, specific in time and space, and at the same time um, expand time and, f and space infinitely. You really can, can take to heart Master Zi Yong's words here. The Dharma does not rise up alone. 
it can't emerge without reliance on the world. One of the ways we can understand this and it can support us, this statement, now in our time, the 21st century, is in terms of our work for the environment, that um, it's not something peripheral, it's right at the center of our practice. Every time, every time a species is lost or, or we pollute another river, um, that world that we rely on is impoverished. Humanity is impoverished, diminished. So, so this work, the work that we do on, on um, caring for our world is, is really central. It's, um, we can see as we can see this work as having two, two prongs, two um, ways forward. Um, in our zazen, in our sitting, we're we're um, we're sitting in order to in order to reconnect with this world. That um, to overcome. Our, our separation from it and from the delusion, the basic delusion in our minds that, that separates uh, me in here and, and it out there. So there's that work. And then there's the work that, that that sitting demands of us, that we get up off the mat and engage in the world with with all its its beauties and its shadows well our time is up we'll stop here and recite the four vows beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. 
I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma against beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.